If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, William the Fourth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Rats Fat Juving, all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And this week, presumably Victoria, then? Well, it's not, because we are doing the forgotten man of uh, the British monarchy, William the Fourth. Yeah, no, I've, I've never heard of him. So we should uh, say congratulations to David Nolan, who was the only person to notice that last week, when talking about George the Fourth, um, when I said about how George was in Ireland and was presented with laurel wreath by... Daniel O'Connell, his mm. famous Irishman, um, I actually, the first time round, referred to him as Daniel O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, for people who don't know, which presumably there were quite a number, as no one else noticed, um, is a, an Irish singer. An so, Irish singer, the Irish Cliff Richard. Yes. Really, who himself is the English Elvis, and if you look at Chris, uh, Daniel O'Donnell and Elvis... You'll see there's no, no similarity <laughs> at all whatsoever. And yet, technically, they're on the same Yeah, there's a small, quick evolution there. William IV is born in 1765, and he's the son of George III and Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. Mm-hmm. And he becomes king in 1830, when he is 65 wow. years old. Wow. So he is currently the oldest person ever to accede to the throne. Rex fact. Um, and like George IV, he is the third great-grand-uncle of Elizabeth II. Okay. Because they are brothers. Yes, no, right, yeah, so that's where he comes in. Yes, George IV is an older brother of William. Right, That's okay. their relation. In terms of his appearance, apparently he's shorter and a bit less handsome uh, than his other brothers, and his head was said to have been shaped like a pineapple. <laughs> Although he was also nicknamed Coconut. But apparently his hats had to be padded... To fit, because of the size of his head, they didn't fit on. So it wasn't properly. just a funky haircut? He no, actually... it's actually his head was shaped like a <laughs> But I'm not, I don't remember George III or IV being particularly attractive. In fact, they're always called fat and ugly. And this guy... Well, George IV was kind of apparently a handsome man who... Oh, in his youth. And he turned, fat. Turned fat. It was William IV um, just had a funny shaped head. Oh, OK. But okay. it saved him from injury once. Apparently he had Ascot one time. Somebody threw a stone at him. And because there was so much padding in his hat, it actually yeah. stopped it uh, oh, right. causing many, uh, any damage. So, yeah. Lucky chap. Pros and cons. Yeah. Well, if, you, if you've got an image of that, draw it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, as a young man, he was a very impressionable... Well, as a young boy, he was a very impressionable, idolised his older brother, the future George IV. 
And this concerned his father, George III, who, of course, saw George IV as being this very mm. uh, unruly, immoral young yeah. scamp. So he was a bit concerned about this, so he decided to sort things out, and he sent William off to join the Navy. Right. So in 1779, 13 years old, William joins the Prince George as a midshipman. So a member of the Royal Family at 13 joins yeah. the Royal Navy? Joins the Royal Navy. Wow, that's quite a hard life. Apparently quite a few. Um, it wasn't uncommon for younger sons of, sort of nobles to spend some time. Yeah, I thought he'd be pampered until 18 and then sort of take some sort of role in the Royal Navy. But Yeah, but no, he's actually there as a sort of fairly junior um, okay. well. officer at that point. And apparently he has a fairly normal naval life. He he does his duties sort of fairly conscientiously. He gets drunk, he womanises, gets into fights. Check, yeah. That's he's a proper sailor. Proper sailor, good. So much so that when he returns home for the first time, George III was a little bit uneasy. So he said, William is rather giddy and is rather too much the manners of his profession. Polishing and composure are the ingredients wanting to make him a charming character. So excessively rough and rude that there was no bearing it. So he sent him off to the Navy. Yeah, to, to get know, some discipline to, and control. Oh, right, but in actual fact, he just like the uh, drunken side. I thought that would have been quite a... So instead, he sends him then off to Hanover, mm. along with his older brother, Frederick. Frederick is the second brother. William is the third brother. Right, okay. George IV's the oldest one, uh, to improve their morals and their bearing and their culture. Again, doesn't very work uh, very well. He gets introduced to gambling tables, has numerous affairs, and gets bored quite early on because he doesn't speak a lot of German and he Mm. found the society rather dull because being a navy man, all this hoity toity stuff. And landlocked. Yeah, isn't much for him. Mm. So he gets brought back um, to Plymouth, 1785, uh, falls in love once again with a, a woman of fairly low. Bearing, so George sends him back off to sea to get him out of that one. 1787 comes back in England. George didn't meet him when he landed, but his brothers came along and joined him, and they had a party for a couple of days. <laughs> uh, fell in love once again, this time with the merchant's daughter. So uh, this time he got sent back off to sea again oh, <laughs> to I keep know. him out of trouble. He's, he's brilliant. He's got it worked <laughs> everywhere, isn't he? He does. Um, then, after, shortly after that, George III has his madness, his, the Porphyria attack, mm. 1788 to 89, so William comes back. And um, because he was away at sea at the time of the Regency crisis with uh, the Prince Regent, George mm. IV, he was cut off from events a bit more. So he had a bit more sympathy with the parents as well as with his brothers. Uh, but when he does come back, apparently he was very moved by the sight of his ailing father, yeah, seeing him in that status. Uh, but that didn't stop him once he'd recovered in 1789 from protesting against the fact that he hadn't yet been made a duke. That seems rather unfair. That would be automatic. Yeah? No, they sort of they were sort of staggering it a bit because probably one of the reasons they stagger it and one of the reasons why he wanted it was that it would mean that he'd have twelve thousand pounds a year grant. Yeah, nice. Guaranteed, rather than just relying on gifts from his father. Yeah. So uh, he threatened uh, to offer himself for election as an MP for Totnes. Huh. Uh, so George III relented and gave him his dukedom. I mean, it was almost certain that it wouldn't have been considered valid that a member of the royal family could be yeah, a member of the House of Commons. Yeah. But nevertheless, he decides to give it to him and he becomes the Duke of Clarence. Um, he then falls in love with a, an actress called uh, Dorothy Jordan and they move in together. He's a romantic chap. And they live happily together for 20 years. Oh, that's nice. ten, ten illegitimate children. However, sadly, in 1811, they separate because William needed a legitimate heir, because, of course, he couldn't marry uh, Dorothy. Jordan Why? Because she was actually Well, because George oh, would yeah. never have sanctioned that with the Royal mm-hmm. Marriages Act. The king has to say, yes, I give my consent. 
And also he needed money because mm. his illegitimate older sons were also taken to gambling. Ah, oh, right. So he needed to find himself a rich, legitimate bride. Mm. So he goes off looking for one, and it's a rather farcical affair. <laughs> Numerous people that he's um, throwing his affections on, Tilney Long, uh, an attractive young woman. He's getting sort of middle-aged by this point. He must be at least 40. 40s and 50s now. He hoped that she would fall for him, proposed six times unsuccessfully until he realised that the very attractive young man that was constantly by her side was actually uh, her lover. Okay. So he moved on, made numerous other proposals, uh, the Lady Dowager Downshire, Margaret Elphinstone, Lady Berkeley, Anne of Denmark, all of whom said no. Well, I don't like him, he sounds nice. Well, he's down the line. Oh, he's got a pineapple head, though. He's got a pineapple head, <laughs> and he's not very well cultured, of oh, course. Right. Yeah. Um, also, the Duchess of Oldenburg, who is the widowed sister of Tsar Alexander I, of Russia. Apparently, he jumped into a carriage with the Russian ambassador's wife, a bit drunk after a ball, insisted on taking her hand, and uh, she was alarmed at first, thinking, what on earth is he going to do, mm. until she realised that actually he was just trying to know what his prospects were with his duchess and get into her good books through her friend. Right. Not the best way no. to go about Ambush. it. So the duchess herself said that he was awkward, not without wit, but definitely unpleasant. <laughs> oh, poor bloke. So uh, he gives up for the time being, deciding that maybe he's just going to be a, a ready bachelor and mm. that's the way to go. Mm. However, things change in 1817 when George IV's only legitimate daughter, Princess Charlotte, dies. So this means that none of the sons of George III have any legitimate children. And this is a lot, mostly down to the marriages act then. It's George III's yeah. fault. It is, because he's restricted who they can marry. So even though many of them have been in quite long-term relationships and productive relationships very productive <laughs> but illegitimate yeah so now there's a rush amongst all the brothers to mm. find themselves a bride because the next one that manages to have a child might get oh, to right, have the next yeah. to the throne so he sends his younger brother adolphus to go out and uh, keep an eye open for a likely bride for him in the course of his travels his younger brother, so wouldn't Adolphus also be looking for... Well, indeed. Um, so he sent back this really glowing description of um, Princess Augusta of Hesse Castle, and it was so glowing that it was obvious that Adolphus himself was in love ah, with the woman. Right. Uh, so apparently William roared with laughter when he heard and said, I'll write and tell him to take her herself. Bless him. <laughs> oh, yeah, nice move. Finally, however, he <laughs> finds his bride. Yay! Princess Adelaide of Saxe-Meiningen. 25 years old, so William IV's 52... Mikey. This stage, dismissed by some as being not handsome, but she was kind, dutiful, loyal, and provided him with domestic harmony again. That's, yeah, okay. Happy to be a stepmother to his ten illegitimate, illegitimate children, which not many other noble women yeah. would have been quite mm -hmm. so understanding. However, it wasn't as productive as they would have hoped. Two short-lived daughters, three miscarriages, they didn't end up having... Oh dear. ...legitimate children. Mm. However, she does have um, one legacy. It is after her whom the South Australian colony, Adelaide, is named. What was her name? Adelaide. Uh, oh, right. Okay, I thought it was Adele. <laughs> <laughs> Adelaide and Adelaide. <laughs> I can see the connection See where it comes in. He's the second brother, Prince Frederick, the Duke of York, dies in 1820. Right. Now, with George IV about to become king, and his daughter dead. This suddenly means that William is now the next in line after George IV. And he's really quite chuffed about it. Mm. At Frederick's funeral, apparently, William was the chief mourner, but was seen to be quite conspicuously affable <laughs> throughout the ceremony, chatting <laughs> to people during it, and uh, was commented saying that he'd be getting much better treatment from everybody now that he was 
a bit higher up the chain. Yeah, but I don't need to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and he was really excited about it. He was long boasted that he would outlive his brothers. Mm. And um, he's really looking forward to potentially becoming king. Apparently he was drinking two gallons of water every morning just because he wanted to be healthy. He didn't want to be having bad stuff, so he drank plenty of water. It's he's, like a little family competition, though. <laughs> he is. He's determined to survive. Wow. That's... Um, and so William is very healthy. He eats sparingly, only drank lemon-flavoured barley water in any great quantity. Uh, we compare that with a gluttony, George mm. IV, of course. Um, he really enjoyed walking. He'd go off by himself for four hours, apparently at the mm. hottest time of the day. And if it was raining, he'd pace around the drawing room with the windows open. So he's getting fit. And his, and his test is just longevity. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And sure enough, in 1830, George IV dies and William becomes king. Gold, gold medal. Allegedly, when he was woken at 6am to be told the news, he was said to have um, gone back to bed saying that he'd never yet slept with the Queen. Mm -hmm. Of course, his wife is now (laughs) going to be Queen. But people have very low expectations of William. Mm. He's seen as quite an eccentric character, Mm. which won't surprise us, we've seen all his dilly-dallying. And quite simple as well, not the brightest spark, perhaps. Okay. He doesn't get much time to uh, settle down, however, and have an easy route in once he becomes king, because we have a huge amount of controversy across the country. There's a clamouring for political reform. Yes, we touched on this last time a little Touching this last time, we've seen the growth of a reform movement in the radical press, particularly around the fact there's no representation for a lot of industrial towns and rather antiquated sort of voting systems in terms of how all the seats mm. are based. Mm. So people have been pressing for change... In 1819, we had the Peterloo Massacre, where at a reform meeting, cavalry charged into innocent spectators with people being killed, hundreds wounded. And Wellington was the first Prime Minister of William IV, but he publicly opposed reform. So, Tories, as a result, fall from power, and the Whigs, after decades in opposition, are back in power. Right. And the Prime Minister is Charles Earl Grey. Ah, lovely. Lovely tea. He of the tea frame, mm. and tea Earl Grey hot. And his lovely lady wife. Indeed, less popular. Yeah, well, lady Grey, like perhaps. a bergamot, that's nice. Indeed. But uh, he's a Northumbrian nobleman, um, Newcastle's Grand Terrace Street, um, and also a column, uh, mm. thanks to him, named after him, a, an accomplished speaker and adulterer. Oh, good, well done. Of course, the, du- the film The Duchess, Kira Knightley, it's the Earl Grey is the one that has the affair with the um, Duchess of Devonshire. I haven't they seen have it. an illegitimate child together. Oh, okay. Um, but he's also importantly he's the leader of the Whigs. He's mm. kept them together after the death of Charles James Fox yeah. in eighteen oh six, and he's now prime minister of a very accomplished government. It includes four future prime ministers with Melbourne, Russell, Derby, and Palmerston. Wow! So it's right, a yeah. big hitting group. Yeah. They put forward a reform bill, and this aims to abolish these rotten boroughs where we have small constituencies with barely any voters and increase the actual franchise, i.e. the number of people who get to vote. Yeah. Um, it only gets passed by one vote in the House of Commons, because, of course, there hasn't been an election, so they don't yeah. have a big majority. OK, yeah, yeah. So Gray asks uh, William IV for a dissolution. He grants it, and the Whigs come back with a massive majority. The public are really behind reform. That isn't the 32 Reform Act. Was that the one? That was this the... is what we're building oh, to. Oh, OK, yeah. big one. However, the House of Lords, of course, is still full of Tories, Conservatives, yep. and they continually reject the bill or put forward proposals to water it down so much that it would lose all value. Mm. So Gray demands 50 extra peers be created by William, uh, i.e. Whig peers, so that they'll be able to win the vote. William was sort of willing to gri- create 20, but 50 was too much for him. 
So William has got power here, though. So he's still well, playing he can still create, part. you know, um, lords. Yeah. So yes, he's very he's very much central to all of this, but he refuses to go as far as fifty. So Grey and the Whigs resign. However, Wellington is unable to form a government because, of course, they have a minority in the Commons mm. and they've got huge divisions within the party. Mm. So William's forced to bring back Grey. Right. He tells um, the Tory peers and indeed bishops who've been quite stringently opposed that if they don't, at the very least, abstain, then he's going to force through new Whig peers. They basically have to support the bill or they're going to be wiped out. Yeah. So they largely abstain. The bill is passed. And 1832, the Great Reform Act... Is passed. Big, big step in British yeah. parliamentary democracy. Yeah, excellent. There's a bit more stuff going on, however. Um, Grey resigns a couple of years later in 1834. Um, there have been serious cabinet divisions around Ireland. Um, radicals in the Whig Party, particularly Lord John Russell, were proposing that Irish church revenues be used for lay purposes, i.e. instead of just having all this surplus money that the Protestant church in Ireland gets, Mm. They can actually say, well, you've got all this surplus, we're just going to spend it on good things like education and things like this. Seems Seems quite reasonable, but not everybody's too happy. William doesn't like this idea because he sees it going against its coronation oath of protecting the Protestant church. Right. That old chestnut. Yeah, that's what um, William the the George IV had. And George III. Yes. Ultimately, there's lots of conflict in Ireland as well, and there's a coercion act that's been put in place to try and resolve all of this. Divisions again, and Grey, rather weary of politics, resigns mm. in 1834. And he's uh, replaced by William Lamb, Melbourne. Right. William Melbourne. He wasn't too sure whether we wanted to be Prime Minister, because it was a lot of extra work. Mm. Um, he said, I think it's a damned bore. I'm in many minds as to what to do. When his secretary suggested it'd be quite nice to be Prime Minister, he said, by God, that's true. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so easily swayed. Easily swayed. William likes Melbourne, but he hates Lord John Russell. Thinks of him as a dangerous radical. Yeah. Doesn't like him at all. But Melbourne wants Russell to be the leader of the party in the House of Commons. Mm. It's a very powerful position. William, dead set against this, argues that the government's far too divided over Ireland and what they're doing, and dismisses Melbourne as Prime Minister. Okay, but so at this point, after he's been doing all this dealing, do they still think of him as a bit simple? Well, he's, he's I think he's sort of gathered a lot, a bit, a lot more respect for his ability yeah. to work on things. Because he's playing a more active role than I thought he would have done. Mm. However, this is a big deal because he's using his sort of powers, as his technical powers as sovereign to dismiss the Prime Minister. So there's not been an election, there's not been an actual breakdown within oh, the party. Oh, good point, so he's just got rid of him. He's just said, no, I don't think you're right, you're out. Wow. So, uh, Peel uh, forms a minority government for the Conservatives. He was actually on holiday at the time, so Wellington formed a caretaker government. But this is a real um, backstep for democracy, because Wellington decided that as Peel was away and no one else was very good, he would fulfil all the major roles of state. So Wellington was Prime Minister, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, (laughs) Chancellor, he was everything. Well, what a guy. Uh, But when Peel comes back, again, they have an election, they're defeated... Mm. So the Whigs under Melbourne are back. Right. Particularly 1835, when all this happens, there's the Litchfield House Compact, where Melbourne allies himself with Irish people's MPs like Daniel O'Connell, and also mm. some of the more radical MPs, which is one of the sort of founding moments for the formation of a Liberal Party. These oh, right. different reformist groups yeah. starting to work together. Right. We haven't quite got there yet, but it's the beginnings. So Melbourne comes back, and William has to accept Russell. 
part of that government. Good. Was there any particular episode, sorry, just going back to Russell, mm. that, that made William hate him quite so much? Well, I mean, I think the the fact that he's he is a radical. Oh, it's, it's just his politics, isn't it? I mean, it's his politics. Right. Okay. I mean, you may well not have liked him personally mm. either, but I think the okay. politics is particularly yeah. important. Okay. Now, as you said, William and Adelaide sadly didn't have any surviving children, so that meant that the next person in line to the throne would be their niece, Victoria. Who is she, the daughter of? She's the daughter of Edward as the Duke of Kent, who sadly died a couple of years, or maybe even less than that, after she was born. Right. Um, but she's still the eldest. And how does he fit in? He's related to George III. He's another son. Right, OK. So Victoria is the oldest grandchild of George III, so she is definitely going to be next in line. OK. William and Adelaide are very fond of Victoria. They're not at all bitter about the fact that they don't have children, and here's this next one. They very, like her very much. However, they do not like her mother, Duchess of Kent, Victoire, as she's called. She demands to be treated as a dowager princess of Wales. Why? Um, because she's, she's got the mother of yeah. the girl who's going to become the queen, and thus wants money with it. Goes off on, a, um, on an unofficial royal progress with Victoria, and also her own secretary, John Conroy, with whom many people thought she might be having an affair. That's a bit presumptuous, isn't it? Very presumptuous. And then 1836, um, William invited them all to Windsor for Adelaide's birthday, which was on the 13th of August, and his own, which was on the 21st of Mm. August. So Duchess of Kent says that she'll arrive on the 20th, i.e. missing Adelaide's birthday. So she's snubbing Adelaide um, and just coming along for his birthday. And she also, going against William's uh, orders, appropriates a suite of apartments in Kensington. Which just, how does she do this? She's just, she's taking liberties. And at court, at his birthday celebrations, William has had enough. So in front of everybody, he delivers this speech. Mm. I trust in God that my life may be spared for nine months long, after which period, in the event of my death, no regency would take place. I should then have the satisfaction of leaving the royal authority to the personal exercise of that young lady, Victoria, the heiress presumptive of the crown, and not in the hands of the person now near me, her mother, who is surrounded by evil advisers, and who is herself incompetent to act with propriety in the station in which she would be placed. Quite damning. And now I know where I know this chap from. The young Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. Mm. So this is a... This sort of thing doesn't really happen in yeah. royal circles. They're meant to be much more, you know... Can you imagine the Queen saying that today? Person. Exactly. Crikey. Yeah. So he wants just to live another nine months... Purely so that Victoria will be queen in her own right and not have a regency. God, that's hatred, isn't it? And saying it publicly very to her publicly. face. Victoria burst into tears. Yeah. Um, her mother, apparently very stony-faced, had to be persuaded not to just storm straight off. It did sort of clear the air, but there was no particularly affectionate reconciliation there, there on. They didn't really see each other again. Yeah. Nine months isn't too long not to see each other, I suppose. Well, indeed. And indeed, it's as long as William's got, because he's um, in declining health. Might have been healthy before. He's uh, suffering from pneumonia, psoriasis of the lungs, uh, of the liver, sorry. His lungs were full of blood. Um, his heart valves ossified. His liver was enlarged and his spleen apparently doubled the normal size. All that barley water. He's really going through it, but he's battling on, fighting on indeed. He says to his uh, doctor, Doctor, I know I'm going, but I should like to see another anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> Try if you cannot tink me up to last that day. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? So he just wants to see out another anniversary of Waterloo. Adelaide, his wife, um, she was very emotional by his side. William was very stoical, not complaining at all. So his, um, when Adelaide's emotional one day, he urges her to um, bear up. Oh, come, bear up, bear up. 
<laughs> I like this guy. Yeah. Um, he dies apparently muttering the church, the church, which was not at all in keeping with any of his concerns during his life. But was he not religious at then? Not particularly. No. Um, but on the 20th of June, 1837, he died at the age of 71. Now, critically, was this nine months? Victoria turned 18 on the 24th of May, so he did it. By how many days? So was it with, uh, well, about a month to spare. Yeah. yeah. So he did it. Victoria succeeds at 18 years old, queen in her own right. I like the way... No regency. This chap... Um, all his life has been just one long battle against death. Yeah. He wants to live long enough to outlive yeah. his brothers. He wants to live long enough to save yeah. Victoria's net. And he's won each time. He has. Him. And Victoria says of him when he died, Poor old man, I feel sorry for him. He was always personally kind to me, and I should be ungrateful and devoid of feeling if I did not remember this. He was odd, very odd and singular, <laughs> but his intentions were often ill-interpreted. Oh, Good. So that was the life and reign of William IV. Yeah, oh, it's good. We're going to go into it in a lot more detail, particularly the Great Reformat, because mm. that's a real biggie. But, first of all... Battleiness! Well, of course, he was in the Navy. He was, oh yeah. Was this the guy they call Sailor... The Sailor King. The Sailor King. William IV yeah. was the Sailor King. I thought that was a George. Very much one of the lads. As you said, he joined the Navy um, just... At 13 years old mm. and he's come of course from an incredibly sheltered privileged upbringing mm. and is suddenly put on a ship with all these sort of rough sailors from mm. completely different backgrounds but he was entirely affable and completely unfazed by the whole thing allegedly when he was um, first asked what they should call him he said i am entered as prince william henry but my father's name is gelf and therefore if you please you may call me william gelf for i'm nothing more than a sailor like yourselves that's brilliant. He must have had a, a much more grounded upbringing then than a lot of his... It's much more down-to-earth, and, of course, being a sailor makes that mm. um, even more marked. So, as we said, drinking, gambling, getting into trouble. Apparently celebrated his 21st birthday raucously at Newfoundland, and at Gibraltar he got into a fight with some soldiers when he heard them insulting the Navy in a pub. Why was his dad named William Gelf? Gelf was the sort of Hanoverian... Like surname. Wales for... Dad. For Harry when he's in the army. Yeah, so it's one obviously they haven't really used very much since becoming right. monarchs. Yeah. Obviously you'd just be George Rex or William Rex, yeah. etc. But Gelf is the old right, okay. surname. So as I said, he's a sailor king. Um, he was stationed in America, in New York specifically, during the American Revolution. Mm. Apparently George Washington actually sanctioned a plot to kidnap him because he was always just wandering around by himself without any particular guards or anything. Just, just wandering about in yeah. Washington? Uh, in New York. In New York. Um, but um, British got caught wind of it and then decided that he should probably have a few guards on him. Crikey. They managed to well, avoid man. that. Cape St. Vincent in 1780, uh, William's ship was chasing the Spanish fleet and William really excitable at the prospect of the battle to come, saying, won't we give those haughty duns a thrashing? <laughs> and indeed they did. He um, only had a very minor role in the battle, but he was in some danger. One crew member was killed, three others were mutilated, so... Yeah, he was in the what thick was of it. it. So, what, do we know what his role was specifically? Um, I don't, not specifically. It's mm. probably you know either on sails or something. Like that. He yeah. wasn't. He wasn't like a. So he wasn't. He wasn't in able to of the ship. No, no, not at all. Um, Admiral Digby, the man in command of the battle, said the moment he saw that they were preparing for action, his spirits rose to a degree that he was almost in a state of insanity. The moment the fleets were separated, his spirits sunk very low. Mm. So you know he's up for the he's, fight. Yeah, he's well for it, isn't he? Yeah. Um, he has a. Decent reputation as an officer, you might argue. Various promotions. 1785 becomes lieutenant. 1790, rear admiral. 1794, vice admiral. 1799, admiral. 1811, admiral of the fleet. And 1827, the extinct post of Lord High Admiral is restored. 
for him. He, he rose right to the top. He rose pretty much to the top. And one of his most ardent critics, uh, Bayer Martin, uh, said of him, I never met with a captain more anxiously devoted to the improvement of his youngsters in all professional matters. It will be well for the service if all who served under his royal highness followed his example. That's pretty good, Graham. And he had a friend, mm. a best buddy in the Navy, mm. Horatio Nelson. No. They were mates. First encountered each other in the West Indies from 1782 to 83. William IV was a bit suspicious of him at first, but immediately won over when talking to him. And, uh, and, and they friendship, they sailed around the Leeward Islands for six months and apparently dined at each other's quarters on alternate nights, talking about old battles and yeah. things like this. 1787, William actually gave Nelson's bride away. Fanny wow. Nesbitt at the wedding. And um, when Nelson died and at the funeral, William was seen to have floods of tears when entering St Paul's Cathedral. Indeed, Nelson said of William, He will be, I am certain, an ornament to our service. He has his foibles as well as private men, but they are far overbalanced by his virtues. In his professional line, he is superior to two-thirds, I am sure, of the list. So he's, so he's better than two-thirds of them. Hmm. He's in the top third of people, he's saying. That's, that's... Well, you know, of the officer class of the Royal that's Navy. That's pretty so, you know, good. That's pretty good. And the fact that was Nelson writing to a friend privately, so this isn't like to a paper or to George III, mm. it's a more reliable... Oh, right, okay. Although Nelson was always quite seduced by royalty. Mm. As Lord High Admiral in 1827... It was largely meant to be a kind of ceremonial role. It had been previously held by um, Queen Anne's husband, Prince George, right. until he died. Um, but he wasn't, wouldn't be done with just ceremonial, ceremonial role, so he made unannounced inspections at dockyards, asked lots of questions at the Admiralty, much more rigorous than really had been the case since Trafalgar. Which was needed, I suppose, because they hadn't really been tested. Since yeah, then. they'd sort of gone a bit yeah. quiet all since then. And he introduced numerous reforms, um, they had now half-yearly reports for each ship's readiness for battle. Um, milder punishments um, were put in place in terms of discipline. And the um, cat nine tails which was this large yeah. whip used to use, um, was abolished in all cases except for mutiny. By, through Williams? Through Williams' reforms. Right. Um, he also resolved to overhaul the state of the naval gunnery, which was in a pretty bad state, and modified a rather anachronistic system of promotion. Which was really all... Um, based on mm. mates and stuff. So he's, uh, he's doing some good That's stuff. Pretty good. Doing some good stuff. However, I'm afraid there are some negatives. Mm. Despite that Cape St. Vincent, he actually has very little experience of being in battle. Yeah. Um, and he's frustrated career of being uh, denied commands of fleets and ships, which is always after. French Revolution, he was refused a commission, partly because he broke his arm after falling down some stairs when drunk, <laughs> uh, but also, mainly probably, because he made a speech in the House of Lords opposing the war. Ah. Uh. And uh, Pitt refused to have a political admiral. So his only actual connection throughout the French Revolutionary Wars was just letters from Nelson. So he's never actually there in the fighting oh, for all that period. All those great naval battles, he's not involved at all. Because he made the speech against it. Because he made the speech. He did then make another speech saying how great the war was, and we should get behind it, expecting that they would just automatically then give him a yeah. promotion. But they didn't. No. He was also a rather harsh disciplinarian. Bayern Martin, as we said, that critic, who was nice to him in terms of looking out to improve his young officers, but he also said uh, that he was deficient in almost all the qualities necessary for a person in high command. He drove men almost to torture, so that as growing boys we had scarcely strength for the work he took out of us. 
And right. Dees William himself said, I see with pleasure that by my having been very severe at first and by my constant attention to my own conduct on board, I am respected and feared. But do you need that? Well, but we think of Nelson and his band of brothers and, you know, yeah. people fighting for him and all these sorts mm. of things. William wants to be feared, mm. respected. It's not quite not so good. And it's so. things like that which make a senior officers think, well, he's probably not someone we ought to put in charge yeah. of an actual fleet. Another example was there, I think, called the Schomburg Affair. Schomburg was an experienced uh, and older but rather overbearing officer who was questioning William's decisions on various things. And William got fed up with it eventually. And um, The superior officer? Uh, Schomburg is an inferior oh, officer okay, to yeah. William. So William gets fed up with all this questioning. Schomburg narrowly avoids um, a court-martial, but he appeals over William's head for the trial to go ahead anyway. Um, Nelson reluctantly has him placed in close confinement and they agree to a trial in Jamaica. But when top brass hear of this, they're not too impressed. Except Schomburg's apology, uh, apology rebuke Nelson. For he was forcing the trial to highlight the issue. Mm. Right, okay. And uh, it tarnishes William's reputation. Mm. They say he's not a man that's very good at managing people. Right. So he's got his qualities, but yeah. HR isn't one of them. <laughs> And as Lord High Admiral, he also has, um, despite all those reforms, it's not a very successful tenure. Cockburn was the uh, senior member of the Admiralty Council, and he rather objected to the fact that William IV, in his ceremonial role, was encroaching on his own powers. So he ultimately demanded that William be dismissed, or he would resign. And Wellington knew that if Cockburn resigns, probably the whole of the council are going to resign as well. Right. They manage to keep them all together, but it all comes to a head when um, William encounters a fleet awaiting its admiral to arrive. Mm. So William, for reasons really unknown <laughs> to himself, hoists his own flag and ordered the ships out to sea. So he just became admiral? Well, he just... And they went sailing off for days and nobody knew where they were or what they were doing. What? Wellington complained. Yeah. And George IV was forced to demand William's resignation. And as George IV wrote to him, he said, It is the feelings of deep regret that I observe the embarrassing situation in which you have placed yourself. You are in error from beginning to end. This is not a matter of opinion. It is a positive fact. Yeah, fair enough. Though. Mm. I mean, he's just stole a fleet of ships. Yeah. Where did he go with them? Do we know? We don't really know. He just went sailing off and came back again. Yeah, went for a little jolly. A little jolly. Okay. So we've got him actually being in the Navy, one of the lads getting involved, a bit of battle experience, some good reforms, some very important reforms. Yeah, no, I still think it's jolly good. Of course, as king... There isn't really yeah, anything. There's, there's a, a naval blockade against the Dutch, which sort of encourages them to accept Belgian independence. But, yeah, generally. So what we've got to go on, then, for battling this is this rather funny um, naval career, yeah. which is more than can be said of a lot of kings before and since, really. Exactly, yeah. um, uh, Apart from the third in line at the moment. Yeah. Um, I think it's really good. And, I mean, there's comedy value. Is the equivalent of stealing yeah. a tank to go off and buy some cigarettes or something. Yes. He just goes and steals a ship. And he rises to the very top. He's up for the battle. He makes some good reforms. Good reforms. But we don't have... We don't have a battle. And during his reign, we don't have yeah. a battle or anything much to speak of. So he's... I wish I could give it know. more. It's not, it's not... That's not really what we're judging it against, though, is yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, he must deserve some credit for actually being in a battle and being in the Navy and being one of the lads. And being quite high up in it for us. And making some decent reforms. Yeah. Um, I can't go higher than five because mm. there's no battles. I can't really go much beyond two, three or three. Three. Mm. 
Uh, it's just a shame. Although, as to his overall character, yeah, I'm I'm going to give him I'm going to give him a five. If for no other reason that he needs to get a higher score than George the Fourth, who got seven. Right. I think he does. You know, he was in battle. He was in battle. Yeah, that's true. And he did like it, given the opportunity. So we get an eight for battliness. Yeah. At least he was genuinely in the armed forces. Exactly. Scandal. Well. William IV is a Hanoverian. Yes. He's a son of George III. He's a brother of George IV. Of course, there is going to be some scandal. He was a womanizer. Of course he was. 1784, he wrote to his brother George IV rather ominously, I've introduced myself into the private parties of women. Private what? Parties. Parties, okay. Yes. Right. Um, Lots of affairs and loves that I won't list, but some of the notable ones. Sarah Martin, 1785... Fell in love with her and wrote to George IV again saying, Do not imagine that I debauched the girl. Such a thought did not once enter my head. So he went rushing off to Windsor, hoping to win approval from his dad for a marriage. And that was one of the occasions where George III just sent him to Plymouth. Oh, right. Okay, Came out of trouble. back to the Navy. So then Sally Wynne um, in Plymouth, yeah. a merchant's daughter, again, um, he fell in love. When George III heard about it, he said, What? William playing the fool again? <laughs> and uh, sent him off to America. Had <laughs> to keep him out of trouble. Oh, he's desperate to fall in love, poor guy. He is. And of course, we know all those proposals that he's making left, right and centre. In Havana, um, there were new cordial relations with Spain, after peace was signed. Um, William visited the Spanish governor with uh, with Nelson. But William was paying the Admiral's daughter, the Spanish Admiral's daughter, rather a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So Nelson had to sort of drag him out before (laughs) he did anything scandalous (laughs) that threatened the new peaceful arrangement. Nelson! And um, when in Hanover, again, writing to George IV, um, he wasn't having a very good time. Mm. And he wrote back saying, In this damnable country, smoking, playing at two-penny whist and wearing great thick boots. Oh, for England and the pretty girls of Westminster, at least as such as would not clap or pox me every time I... Oh, dear, that is, yeah. Poor William. We also, of course, have Dorothy Jordan. Right. Which, in a way, like with George IV, um, you know, one of his longest-lasting scandalous affairs, it's actually one of the more redeeming qualities. Oh, because it's 20 years, yeah. 20 years. Um, she was born Dorothy Bland right, in uh, 1761, right. illegitimate child of a Welsh actress and uh, an Irishman. Mm. Uh, father abandoned the family when she was 13, her mother died when she was 17. Mm. So she took to the stage to support herself, became an actress, fled to England with a child, so changed her name to Mrs Jordan, um, had another two illegitimate daughters with somebody else who didn't want to marry her and ran off as well. Mm. So, she, you know, she's not a woman of high social standing. Mm. Um, but William sees her acting. She's this vivacious character, lovely voice and smile, apparently falls in love with her. That's lovely. So, as we said, domestic life together, ten illegitimate children, happy for 24 years. And uh, William himself said, Mrs Jordan is a very good creature, very domestic and careful of her children. To be sure, she is absurd sometimes and had her humours. But there are such things, more or less, in all families. Yeah, reasonable. And surprisingly, although he would never have even considered accepting the marriage, George III seemed to be fairly okay with the relationship. Because uh, it brought stability, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and the domestic life, which George IV never took to, but George III loved. Yeah. So this is the difference between William IV and George III. William does actually like his... Yeah, he wants to settle down, doesn't he? Yes, he, he wants does. to be in love, but he just tad went and marry So George is saying to him, Hey, hey, what's this? What's this? You keep an actress, they say. Ah, well, well, how much should you give her, eh? A thousand? A thousand? Too much, too much. <laughs> Five hundred, quite enough. Quite enough. 
Oh, I miss him. <laughs> um, but he doesn't come out of it quite so well when they separate. As we said, William IV was in debt with his adult gambling sons. He needed a legitimate heir. So in 1811, Dorothy was handed a letter saying that uh, she needed to meet William to discuss their separation. And that's the first she knew? First she heard of it. So that night, before she saw him on stage, um, she burst into tears at one point where she was meant to be laughing raucously. Oh, Oh, broke God. down. Oh, it was yeah. quite a generous settlement. She got an annual allowance of um, £1,500, which is a lot of money at the time. Mm. £800 for the daughters that she had with her previous um, men, and uh, another 1500 for her youngest daughters, but she'd forfeit custody of them if she returned to the stage. Why? Well, because it's not a very becoming okay. thing to do. Um, however, sadly, she was rather ignored by her children, who continued to be problems and racking up debts, she was forced to return to the stage to make money for herself. Oh, no. So she did lose custody. Oh, that's awful. William's chief advisor told her to go to Paris while he stayed in England and resolved all of her debts for her. Yeah. Um, but actually, he just got her out of the way. And she died essentially waiting for a letter saying that it's all sorted in 1816. That's... Oh, what a... Oh, I feel deflated. Horrible. Yeah. Really tragic. He, in defence of William, he was deeply upset when he heard about it, and he had been kept in, th- in the dark by his advisor, so he didn't realise that she was in such dire straits and that it had come to this. But how could he just um, leave her like that? Yeah, that's the thing. He, he wasn't guilty. He would almost certainly would have done something to stop it if he'd known about it. But and he didn't he... take enough care to find out. But he did want to marry her. He was yeah. to... he, because of... Uh, it's because of his brother's daughter dying, he had to go and mm. find another wife. He did. He um, have to, I suppose, when right? he became king and when he was married, he had at uh, Clarence's house where he lived, he had a bust of her made and showed prominently. He had a bust made? Yeah, a bust and oh, a okay, statue. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, even though he's married now yeah. to a legitimate queen, he does then recognise her and have a, what does, a um... statue made of her. But the main thing, of course, for William is that he doesn't have the upper class social mores yeah. of his uh, contemporaries. He's yeah. got rough naval sailor habits. Mm. Uh, bad language, Excellent. as we discovered already. Mm. Forthright opinions, very honest and down-to-earth, but completely lacking in airs and graces. Uh, he had a tendency to spit frequently and copiously in public. Oh, that's not nice. As a young man. Um, had a repertoire of dirty stories, which made him a terror of the genteel drawing rooms. <laughs> uh, this is one example with um, a woman, Mrs. Schellenberg, when um, the ladies and gentlemen having a very... Cultured and orderly uh, dinner and yeah. gorgeous drinks. Um, William IV barges in, rather drunk, after attending a ball, um, orders champagne for everybody and demands that they drink the health to his father, George III, and then he orders that they keep refilling their glasses and drinking more toasts, until Schellenberg eventually protests, to which he uh, jovially said to her, Hold your potato jaw, my dear! And then realised he maybe offended her slightly, <laughs> yeah. uh, tried to make amends by kissing her hands before somebody so obsessively dragged him off to the next ball before he could cause any more mischief. <laughs> and quite a brave card for him to play. Yes. Naming vegetable parts on the face of And another woman, Lady George Murray, asked uh, William not to swear in front of her children. Um, so when leaving, having spent the day with them, he was very pleased with himself and he said, Lady George, have I not been very careful? I'm sure your boy has not learnt any naughty words from me. <laughs> but yes. um, she was grateful, but asked him why he couldn't just not swear the rest of the time as well, <laughs> yeah. rather than having to make an extra special effort. He said, well, I bloody tried. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing too groundbreaking scandal-wise there, but... 
and, no, you know, a healthy yeah. misbehaviour and womanising. He's and, just a scamp, isn't he? He's a he is a scamp. He's a, I like him. A jolly jack tar. Yeah. Um, um, he's he seems much more. I prefer him to George Fourth um, mm. for his <coughs> scandalous ways. Shame <laughs> about Mr. Jordan. Yeah. Um, but I mean that adds to his scandal, I suppose. Mm. I mean, it's no, there's no earth shattering, is there? There's Nothing no Thomas Beckett's no. or yeah. Um, no divorce, no murder, no. No, it's just big a, things. Just a healthy dose of mm. womanising. Yeah. And swearing. Swearing, spitting. Spitting, yeah. This is a fairly standard amount of scandal. Yeah, it's nothing special here. No, but I'll, I'll give him five. I like it. Five, I'll give him six because I like him. I'm uh, I'm giving him a four, I mm-hmm. think. it's. I think it's just because it's standard scandal. It is, isn't it? It's, it's want... better than the moral types, obviously. Yeah, but this is... You want this, mm. and then you want something... To make the papers on top of that. Only a bit more. That's a 10 for scandal. You know, a respectable score. Mm. Subjectivity. Well, the big thing, as we said, is the 1832, the Reform Act. Yeah. We got asked uh, a question a little bit of time ago by uh, Tommy Herbert. Yeah. He wanted to know about Parliament and how Parliament, never really getting mentioned, and then suddenly we have the Civil War and Cromwell and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Where does it all true. come from? How is Parliament holding all the keys? Well... Now we're going to do the history of Parliament. Oh, right. A quick whiz through. Saxons. Haven't heard of them for a while. Right back to the beginning. We had the Wheatan, which is this council of the king's leading advisers, major sort of noble figures. They only met when they were called on by the king, so they're not really a parliament as such. Mm, Um, But we do have local government through shire moots. I've heard of these. It's where we get moot halls, of course. Mm. And the Shire system, local government, goes, I think even in the 20th century, I think up to the 1960, some of the Saxon divisions mm. of local government yeah. last a very long time. The next big thing, really, is King John and the Magna Carta, yep. 1215. This is where John is forced to proclaim certain liberties and acknowledge that his will as monarch was not arbitrary. He was subject to certain restrictions of his power. There it is. And then, of course, we have that first baron's war to enforce Magna Carta on John. Ah, fun. Edward I. Uh, yeah, well, that was the second oh, event, I think, yes. because then we have Simon de Montfort. That's the one. And Henry III. Henry III ruled limited under the provisions of Oxford, so we had a council of barons and a thrice-yearly parliament. Mm. So in 1264, Simon de Montfort imprisoned Henry and Edward, mm. briefly, and summoned the first parliament without royal authorisation. That's a big moment. Mm. Much more democratic, particularly in terms of how the elections were done and who was eligible for election. Edward I, of course, came along, killed Montfort and got the royals back, but he brings things forward quite a lot as well with a model parliament. Yeah. Of course. 1295, aristocracy and clergy, as well as county and borough men. So we've got the sort of the um, emerging gentry. Uh, so the main role of the parliament at this point is just to levy taxes, but it's a powerful force if we have weak monarchs, mm. which of course we do straight afterwards with his son Edward II. Yeah. So Edward II and Richard II both deposed, and parliament is required to legitimise those depositions. So that's their first big test then, really. So before it was the monarch recognising parliament, and now it's parliament recognising the new monarch. Exactly. Wow. Um, also, under Edward III, a lot of um, things move forward. 1341, we have the first separation of the Commons and the Lords. When was that, sorry? Uh, 1341. So right. we'd have the yeah. House of Commons and House of Lords now right. starting to sit separately. Commons, incidentally, from the French uh, for communities rather than commoners. Oh, right. Which you might have expected. That's exactly what I thought. Yes, yeah. but it's communities, French. 
Um, also, no law or tax could be passed without the consent of not only the monarch, but also both houses. And also, 1376, Peter de la Mare becomes the first Speaker of the House. So we're getting towards having a leading figure mm. in the Commons as well. Of course, under the Tudors, we have a real big step forward. The Reformation, of course, separated England from the dominance of Rome, used Parliament to force that through, because he had huge resistance from the bishops, so the spiritual mm. laws, but it's the Parliament that passes it and puts on the pressure that mm. helps him get it through. Right. And yeah. the legacy of the Reformation and also his wasteful spending is that his successors have less money, so they need Parliament to get the money, mm. but also we have that religious toing and froing. We've got Edward VI is very Protestant, Mary is very Catholic, mm. Elizabeth is Protestant but trying to be a bit more yeah, encompassing to everybody, and Parliament is hugely important in terms of how yeah. that happens and how the reforms are passed. Now, Elizabeth is able to still have this dominance and this hold over mm. Parliament, but when the Stuarts come along and want to have divine rule, as they did in Scotland, they find it a little bit tricky. And sure enough, Charles I has this 11-year personal rule where he just gets rid of Parliament completely. And after that all comes to an end, we have the Civil War, Charles I is executed, and Cromwell abolishes House of Lords and makes England a republic. However, Cromwell isn't able to get a new stable system in place without the Lords and without a monarchy, so... We have the Restoration, Charles II. Yeah. And then the Glorious Revolution, when James II is deposed. And it's essentially is deposed by Parliament. And yeah, because invited Peter. in, didn't it? So it's not the Lords, like the Wars of the Roses and things like this. It's not these powerful barons, it's Parliament. Mainly the Lords, of course, rather than the Commons. But nevertheless, again, the new monarchs coming in, William and Mary, are installed with the Declaration of Rights. So it's of subjects, it's of liberties. But most importantly, it's establishing that Parliament is legally sovereign. Yeah, so we're getting... That's the, <clears throat> we mentioned at the time when William waddled in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the start of the constitutional monarchy. Exactly. So when the Hanoverians come along, the current position, we have the emergence of political parties, the Tories and the Whigs, mm. and the emergence of Prime Ministers, of course, Robert Walpole, Pitt the Elder, Pitt the Younger, and the House of Commons, with these Prime Ministerial pe people yeah. who are in the Commons, becomes increasingly powerful... So Parliament, at this time, has 658 MPs, borough and county seats. Boroughs, um, sort of the more town and trading areas, vary hugely in size and population, and new industrial cities aren't represented at all. So Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, Sheffield, 540,000 people between them, not one MP. And this is because, historically, you've had these areas that have a representation, mm -hmm. and these new in industries that have sprung up, yeah. So quickly, so after, in 20 years, they're just in the wilderness. Exactly. And people living there. Right. And people are thinking, we really would quite like to have at least one MP, would be nice. a voice yeah. in the democratic system. We also, if you said, have these rotten boroughs. So these are tiny, tiny constituency, which are entirely dominated by landowners, because not only is there a very small population, but they are the tenants of the landowner. And there's no secret ballot so if the landowner knows how people vote, so if people vote for the candidate that he doesn't want, then he'll evict them. <laughs> That's outrageous. So it's pretty corrupt. So the most famous example is Old Sarum, um, where there were only three houses and seven voters. So the proposals are to abolish small boroughs, so those below 2,000 population. Medium boroughs, i.e. two to 4,000, will have just one MP rather than two, because mm. the many double-seated constituencies... There'd be new industrial seats in the new towns and cities. And the borough franchise would become uniform. So households, 
paying a rate of £10 per year, the men would have the vote. Right. 1831, they tried to get it all done, but of course, as you said, they didn't have that majority in the House of Commons. The Reform Bill only passed by one vote, but the Tories are passing all these wrecking amendments. So Gray asked William for a dissolution and it was accepted. So 1831, the Whigs secure a 136 majority. Mm. Um, 76 out of the 82 English county members elected favoured reform. Mm. And um, barely any anti-reform Tory survived a fight. So where there was a Whig and a Tory, if you weren't for reform, you didn't get elected. The public are bigly, uh, massively behind it. But as we said, the House of Lords still resist. William agreed 20 new peers, but couldn't go to 50... So the Whigs resigned. And this has a really bad effect in the country because we've seen that pressure building for reform. So we have the days of May. There's an upsurge in membership of Birmingham Political Union, the rally of 100,000 people, um, again, clamouring for reform. Armed mobs attack homes of prominent opponents to reform. There's rioting in London and Newcastle various other cities. Sidney Smith, the clergyman, observed a handshaking, bowel-disturbing passion of fear right. in the country at the time. And uh, the historians E.P. Thompson and Eric Hobsbawm thought that this was the closest Britain ever came to an actual revolution. Such right, was the strength really of opinion. strong words. And it was only a year earlier, 1830, Charles X of France had been driven from his throne. So, you know, revolution is still very much mm, it's in, the air, isn't it? in the air. But there is success. William uh, Wellington couldn't form the government. William brings back Grey tells the Tory peers to get in line mm. or get out of line, and it's passed. So, William, um, since this growing, as we say, the air of revolution, mm. and he came along and, in his hackney cab, saved the day? Um, well, that was to dissolve the election initially, and then after all that toing and froing, he did, of course, dismiss the Whigs and initially refused the 50 peers, so he got a lot yeah. of criticism for that. But he saw the error there. But he did see the error, and then he... It was his role was very important in actually forcing it through. That's great. As it said, you know, other people, other monarchs, his brother, the Duke of Cumberland, was an arch-Tory, would definitely have refused it outright. And then who knows? Who knows exactly yeah. what would happen. George IV wouldn't have been too keen for it either. George said certainly not. Um, so 144 seats were abolished as mm. a result of this. 22 new double borough and 19 new single um, borough seats. 65 new county seats. Birmingham, Blackburn, Bolton, Bradford, Oldham, Leeds, Manchester, Sheffield, Sunderland, all get an MP for the very first time. That's the industrial heartland then. The industrial world. heartland, Midlands in the north. Polling period in elections is restricted to two days. It was previously two weeks. Um, there are more polling places and booths provided, and there's a register of electors that are compiled in each constituency for the first time. So this is voting, as we know it's it really, now. Yeah, it's starting to get towards it. The electorate itself, the number of people who can vote, is raised from 440,000 to 656,000, mm. 45% increase. So 18.4% of adult males can vote in England and Wales. There are limitations. There's still no secret ballot. We don't have complete household qualification or, indeed, universal male suffrage. Okay, yeah, yeah. There are still 73 boroughs with less than 500 voters, so they haven't completely got rid of those sorts of seats. The industrial Midlands and the North are still hugely underrepresented in terms of comparison with the South. And landed men still make up 70 to 80% of the members of the House of Commons. But it's a step, though. It's quite, I mean, it's a a giant step, really. And about as much as could have been achieved at the time, almost certainly. Yeah. And we've got William to thank for... Not if not the actual bill itself, but its its success. Mm. Some people have criticised his role in it. Some people have said that actually 
he made various mishaps and he was actually just outmaneuvered by the Whigs, who right. refused them, the new mm-hmm. peers, but then they outdid him. So they're suggesting actually maybe, you know, he was a bit lucky that yeah. it all worked out for him. But on the other hand, as he said, other monarchs, it could have been revolution. Yeah. And he does play an active role in sorting it all out. Yeah, certainly could have been. Mm. So that's all good. That's very good. But there's more. Other reforms. 1833, we have the Factory Act. This established a regular working day in the textile industry for the first time, so um, regularised the hours they can work. Also regulated working hours for children, based on their age. Right. So you still have, obviously, child labour, but they're taking steps to... Yeah. You know. I mean, there's a lot of these laws seem to be because the look of the country has changed from this rural... Mm. Um, a deal to the, the factories, so we get the voting form and these sort of labour. So they hadn't caught up with all these changes, and that's what they're starting yeah. to do now. And there's routine inspection of factories to make sure that they comply with very, very basic safety. Yes. <laughs> Bank charter in 1833 as well established notes for um, values of five pounds or more. Right. So we get banknotes for the first time. Oh right. National standardisation and also accountability. The Bank of England required to publish quarterly accounts for the first time. Mm. 1833, a biggie. The Slavery Abolition Act. This has been going on. So Wil- Wilberforce. Yeah, so previously we've abolished the slave trade, but now slavery as a status is abolished in the British Empire. Um, children under six are freed immediately. Older slaves become apprentices, which terminates in 1840. So there's a sort of gradual process so to get used to it. paid or something? Or... I think it's more that they have to keep working for... Right. Um, their previous owners, but they are going to be free. So it's a kind of a period to allow a readjustment. Okay. Um, but well, that's social upheaval. That must have been exactly. really, really huge amount of compensation okay. was paid out to slave owners as well. The poor, really? the poor devils. You I know. mean, they're, they're out of a workforce. Poor exactly. Chap, exactly. Yeah. Very difficult. He's a constitutional monarch. Now we've said this before about George the First. George, we say always oh, constitutional because he's taking advice. But this is the first time we can really see a modern constitutional monarchy defined, and it's by William. Even though he's t- he is taking more of a role than we'd perhaps re- realise today. Even though he takes a bit more of a role, he, his philosophy, as he put himself, was to support the Prime Minister until Parliament, by its vote, determines that the Prime Minister no longer possesses the confidence of the nation. Well, that's word for word what Elizabeth does. So he doesn't take um, advice from the opposition anymore. He only sees him socially. His government is his government. His Prime Minister is Prime Minister. Oh, that's an interesting distinction then, because you can see that with um, the previous Georges, how they'd set up rival camps. Mm. Yeah, and he's a very hard-working monarch. Mm. Complete contrast to George the Fourth. Yeah, indeed, George the Fourth left a backlog of forty-eight thousand papers that required the monarch's signature. Crikey! So forty-eight thousand, and he stayed up late into the night, hours and hours, night after night, signing papers. And Adelaide would be beside him with a warm um, basin of water to bathe his blistering fingers because he was writing. Really? He has to meet this backlog. He actually they has to They don't just throw them out, he actually one. has to do it. Do we, do we know how long that took him? We don't have that written down. Oh, I'd love to know what his speed was. <laughs> uh, indeed, Wellington said, If I had been able to deal with my late master, George IV, as I do with my present, I should have got on much better. I've done more business with him in ten minutes than with the other in as many days. Mm. And uh, Lord Brotham said, generally speaking, he was an excellent man of business, unlike his brother, who would ask no questions for showing fear, uh, for fear of showing his ignorance, or his father, who would run on with too many and would not wait for answers. He asked as many as were required to let him fully understand whatever was brought before him and gave his own views with perfect candour and fairness. 
That's great. Hmm. That's what you want. Exactly. So she said people didn't have good expectations, but actually once he gets to it, he's actually quite competent. Yeah. He's also quite an affable chap. Yeah, we see, like our apple chaps. Like him, yeah. Very accessible man who said those naval inspections when Lord High Admiral. The dockers were startled because William just came along, pottering about by himself. Again, no by one with himself. him. I, I mean, it was Prince William at this yeah. stage, but no, no one else with him. And he just chats to everybody. The dockers, no pomp, no ceremony. He's just future king. Chatting away. At this point, George IV, is king, is hiding away in Windsor and Brighton, not being seen by anyone. Because he's so figure. big. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas William's just out and about chatting to everyone. Winning the longevity battle. Exactly. And he's, you know, he's a pretty decent chap to be around as well. There was one time at a party where a bored-looking guest, a very tired man, William told him, oh, go to bed. And the guest pointed out that protocol dictated that he couldn't go to bed until William had yeah. gone to bed. And to which William responded, oh, damn it, I'll smuggle you out. <laughs> oh, nice guy. And there's another guy, there was a man, the Reverend Mr Smith, there was a clergyman who by some accident, was invited to dine with William at Windsor. Yeah. Uh, sorry, at Brighton. Um, William saw him, because he hadn't invited him, so he demanded, and who the devil are you, sir? I never asked you. <laughs> so this poor chap <laughs> shows him this invitation slip with his name on yeah. it. And um, William then, for the rest of the night, went out of his way to be nice to him. Oh, and uh, at the dinner proposed a toast to the health of my new friend, the Reverend Mr Smith, and to our long friendship. Oh, this guy, this he's who I thought... George IV was, basically. Um, he could be rather foolish and quite boorish. Yeah. Uh, like good. his brother, you know, getting drunk and all the sort of stuff, yeah. plying people champagne. But he had a genuine like for other people and an interest in their happiness. Yeah. So there's this element of empathy, which is maybe lacking. It's certainly lacking George IV. And some of yeah. the others. Um, so a couple of examples of him being rather boorish. Yeah. Um, there was a Quaker girl that you saw looking wistfully through a shop window. And of course, Quakers are meant to be not, you know, not tempted by yeah. all these sorts of things. So he nudged her rather familiarly and said, <laughs> so I see thou art not above the vanities of the world. <laughs> and another one to a painter, a Northcote, who was visiting, got a bit bored and noted that he'd got dirty collar and dandruff and said, I see you do not take much care over your toilet. And um, was sort of touching him and prodding him and pointing it out. And Northcote was very unhappy and said, sir, I never allow anyone to take personal liberties with me. You are the first that has ever presumed to do so, and I beg your royal highness to recollect that I'm in my own house. <laughs> in my mind, he's poking with a stick. Yes. <laughs> look at this, look at this, what's this? But this is the nice thing about William, is that he does actually care about people and their feelings. So the Quaker girl, he saw that he'd upset her. Yeah. So he rushed into the shop, bought her a very expensive work basket, and, prepared, and persuaded her mother to accept it on the girl's behalf. Oh, he's... Great. And the painter, he came back the next day, after leaving rather grumpily, and said, Yesterday I took a very unbecoming liberty with you, and you properly resented it. I really am angry with myself, and hope you'll forgive me and think no more of it. It's, it's got humility. Humility. And perhaps more marked than anything else is William's behaviour on his accession. Mm. He'd been looking forward to it, as we he know. He really had. And he is dead chuffed. <laughs> And as we know, he liked going for walks. Yeah. So he just went for a stroll on St James's Street in London, unaccompanied. I've definitely heard of this before, yeah. And as he's king now, but he's just wandering around by himself, no one else around. And he soon attracts huge crowds. He's the king. Yeah. Um, a prostitute even kisses him on the cheek. Oh, crumbs. Um, 
Adelaide and Wellington aren't too happy about this, mm. but William says, oh, never mind all this. One I've walked about a few times, I'll get used to it and take no notice. <laughs> so he wants more. Does he? Uh, no, they do persuade oh. him that he probably shouldn't. Oh. Um, but a diarist at the time, Emily Eden, noted that uh, though our adored sovereign is either mad or very foolish, he is an immense improvement on the last unforgiven animal who died growling sulkily in his den at Windsor. This man at least wishes to make everybody happy, and everything has done has been benevolent. Indeed, as, yeah. well, as Wellington comments, this is not a new reign, it is a new dynasty. It is, it's, and it's, the change of name is mm. um, really, really important. Actually, and we think reason. about the legacy that he leaves to Victoria, because George Fault was so unpopular, and amidst that clamming of um, revolution and reform protest yeah. and all this sort of thing, the monarchy had really slipped as an institution. Mm. But William leaves a secure legacy yeah. for Victoria. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I'd love to be a subject. That's great. It's very good. It's very good. But as is our way, I fear I must go I through... I'm not sure I want to listen. ...some negatives. A few things may disappoint you. Whilst he was a prince, he actually opposed the abolition of the slave trade. Oh. <sighs> OK, go on. Without this trade, the West Indies must be lost to Britain, and without the West Indies, not only the dignity and prosperity of the nation was gone, but its very existence as an independent empire would cease. So he's saying, look, if we get rid of slavery, then we're going to lose a lot of money. Yeah, so he's thinking about losing territory and the prestige over the... Territory, but he's also saying that Jamaica and the West Indies are going to struggle economically themselves. He's saying, this is very bad, they're going to struggle... And because of his experience in the West Indies with the Navy, his opinions are taken seriously. Yeah. Because he's in the Lords making these speeches at the time. And he also said, the promoters of abolition are either fanatics or hypocrites. And in one of these classes, I rank Mr Wilberforce. Oh, this is... Oh, I'm deflated again. (laughs) As uh, Zachary Macaulay noted, it is shocking that so young a man under no bias of interest should be so earnest for the continuance of the slave trade. Why was he speaking of the Lords? Because he, he was the Duke of Clarence, so he oh, sat right, in the okay. Lords. Okay. However, he did have more liberal views yeah. um, whilst in the Lords. He opposed an 1800 and adultery bill, which was uh, going to prevent adulterers from remarrying. Yeah. Uh, because he said that would reduce women to suicide or prostitution. Yeah. Because, and of course, they've got no means of um, earning yeah. their living yeah. otherwise without a husband. And he also argued against um, compulsory church attendance. Then hey, people should be free to excellent. go or not go. Yeah. Now, we said about how he's a constitutional monarch and all this good stuff, but he does, of course, dismiss Melbourne as Prime Minister yeah. without an election and without um, Parliament yeah. voting of no confidence. And it's the last ever time that a Prime Minister was dismissed on the monarch's personal preference. And this yeah. actually goes beyond what George IV ever did. George never, IV never went that far. Right. So although he's in some ways more constitutional, he does also overstep the mark. But then he recognised that and he changed the role to fit. He does, and indeed uh, Melbourne said afterwards, I'm not surprised at his decision, nor do I know that I can entirely condemn it. The King's conduct has been most fair, honourable and kind, and I owe it to him to say that whether his decision be right or wrong, I feel confident that he has come to it consci- conscientiously, upon his own conviction, and unbiased by any other advice or influence whatever. Good. A bit of legislation which does go rather wrong is the Poor Law Amendment Act in 1834. This was to have a central bureaucracy rather than a very local system for poor laws to support people in poverty. So local parishes had to join together to support workhouses rather than um, home relief. 
And the workhouse was set up to be a deliberately harsh regime. Yeah. So that only the most desperate would apply. It abolishes other systems of relief, so it actually in many ways makes things worse, particularly in the north of England, which hadn't been covered by the old laws. Right. So lots of people don't actually want to go into the workhouse, even if they are suffering. And they have to, and they're sort of then trapped because there's no way out. Yes, and um, Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens' um, novel, is in direct retaliation to the Mm. Paul Amendment Act and the effect that it has. Because we're getting into Dickens' time now. We are, very much. Things aren't too good in Ireland in this period. We have the tithe wars. Tithes are payments that had to be made to the church. but They weren't monetary payments, so it was a very old, ancient system of land produce. So you had to give a, a sort of a proportion of the amount of produce you got from the land, mm. i.e. meat or vegetables, crops, to the church as payment. For what? Um, well, just to support the church. Outrageous. Obliged to pay tithes for the Church of Ireland, which is the Protestant church. And the burden really falls on the Catholic tenant farmers in terms of the produce and the production. So there's an 8 million population in Ireland, but only 1 million of them are Protestant. Mm. So you've got all these Catholic farms paying out all this produce to this, this minority church. As a result of Catholic emancipation, there are more Irish Catholic MPs, including Daniel O'Connell. And from 1831, there are violent protests against collection of tithes, meaning the army and the police have to step in. Right. And there are conflicts, actual people getting killed in all of this, sometimes just you know, for the collection of shillings. That's people awful. are being killed. So Ireland is starting to be abandoned almost to lawlessness. It's really becoming yeah. um, very dangerous. 1833, there's a reform bill. Completely overhaul the system, reduce bishoprics by ten, abolish crops of sinecures. But Russell, this is when he wanted that the surplus revenues go towards education. Mm. So they're saying, well, there's money they don't need, so we're going to put it back and use it to good effect. Yeah. But, of course, Whig divisions and William IV thinking, well, this is going against the Protestant church, this is against my coronation oath, what not, doesn't want all this, and it leads to Grey resigning. Yeah, this is bad. And William did his best, ultimately, when he realised something had to be done. So he did his best to try and get something done and worked on the laws like he'd done with the Reform Act. But he still opposed Russell. 1790s, in contrast to George IV, he'd urged that they do use force to subdue Ireland and um, supported a coalition bill in 1833 suspending habeas corpus and he urged that any attempt to repeal the Act of Union between Britain and Ireland be deemed high treason. I mean, I can understand that <coughs> given the he's the king, so mm. splitting up the, of the, his territory must be considered treason, mm. but the... Yeah, just it's always the way with these Hanoverians. They're as useful as the Irish. And yet, contradiction again, um, as Prince William, he, in the House of Lords, supported Catholic emancipation. Well, that's great. That balances out. <laughs> but he t- you know, he just won, he, then he yeah. does the complete opposite. He's yeah. hard to predict. Now, this is one, I've got it under sort of bad subjectivity for this, um, quite a lot of enjoyableness in all of this, but Thanks. he does have a lack of regality. It's nice that he's down to earth and he's not the excess of George IV, but you can argue that he goes a bit beyond that and is rather all too down to earth yeah. for the monarchy. You think the monarchy should have some trappings of royalty. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, some untouchableness or something. We really see his lack of regality when it comes to his coronation. <laughs> he didn't want one at all. Why? He thought it a pointless piece of flummery and an excuse for useless and ill-timed expense. 
Well, okay. So he doesn't like really ceremony. Right. He's yeah. that down to earth. He thinks, oh, this is all silly, silly, silly. Oh, right. Um, it, indeed, the House of Lords at one point, apparently, when in the waiting room to uh, dissolve Parliament, he put the crown on his head and said, Now, my lord, the coronation is over. Yeah, that'd be fair so, enough. Blonk, done. Yeah. Because he doesn't believe he needs the religious service, then. Well, is, yeah, so um, 14 months after he becomes king, he finally agrees to it. So he actually refused the ceremony? It cost £37,000, in contrast to George IV's £250,000. Yeah. Rather cheaper. Uh, apparently when some peers threatened to boycott it, because they were starting to nickname it the half-crownation, so uh, cheap, um, he replied to them saying, I anticipate from that great convenience of room and less heat. <laughs> She just didn't care. I mean, he didn't want it anyway, so if yeah. people there, didn't The ceremony itself abandoned many of the ancient customs, the uh, the long procession, the coronation banquet, the throwing down of the gauntlet, all these sort of big ceremonial things. They just don't bother with it anymore. Are they ever brought back? Never brought back. And throughout, he acted as if he was a leading character in a comic opera, being, very, again, very conspicuously not taking it seriously at all. And this is one point where he was meant to make an ablation, so, you know, a donation. Yeah. Um, to the priest, and finally he had to say to him, I haven't got anything, I'll send it to you tomorrow. <laughs> That's amazing. And did he was complete, he had no imagination whatsoever, he was completely rooted way below the earth in uh, common sense. So apparently when he was at Brighton and the chaplain um, prayed for rain, William in his sort of stage whisper said, no good when the wind's in the southeast." <laughs> it's true. <laughs> true. Um, he stayed in very... That's Sailor! That's his that's Sailor. His sailors, yeah. Yeah. Stayed in the, an elegant but incredibly modest, Cla- uh, modest Clarence house, which now, of course, is you know, the Prince yeah. of Wales' establishment. Yeah. Um, but he disliked Buckingham Palace. Thought it a very silly place. So that's why he... It was built, but he wasn't the first to move in then? Yeah, so um, Clarence House was a bit for William. That's where he stayed. He didn't move into the Great Palace. So he initially suggested they could use it as barracks for the army. And then when Parliament burnt down in 1834, all of Westminster, except for the Great Hall, burned down in a fire. Yeah. He said, ah, you can use Buckingham Palace if you like. Yeah. I don't there. want it. Have it. Yeah. But they thought probably best have our own spot <laughs> yeah. rather than the King's building. And life could be rather dull at the Royal Court. I don't believe that. After dinner, because, you know, he's an older man once he becomes king, of course. Yeah, I suppose. 65 when he becomes mm. king. After dinner, Adelaide would do needlework and knitting mm. while William would just sort of doze off in his chair. But that's what he wanted, isn't it? He wanted a uh, he wanted Lapsed stability. So yeah. apparently he'd just wake up occasionally to say, Exactly so, ma'am, and then fall asleep again. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not a man of culture, in vast contrast to George Fourth, who has a huge cultural legacy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Slept through opera, was suspicious of all writers, <laughs> found sport tedious. <laughs> And uh, when presented with some of George IV's magnificent artwork, he um, responded, Aye, it seems pretty. I dare say it is. My brother was very fond of this sort of knick-knackery. <laughs> oh, so he is. Yeah, he's just... He's he's like an ostrich. He's that down-to-earth. He yeah, he's, he's so down-to-earth that it's you know it's almost beyond just yeah, being... Yeah, you can't of, even see, yeah. appreciate art. Yeah. Um, but that, well, I mean, that was, to me, mm. um, George IV's saving grace, really. Yeah. His, that's his, his cultural, subjectivity, yeah. his cultural legacy. So, mm. I mean, there's just so much there. How do you mm. tackle that? I mean, obviously, okay, so the biggies. Yeah. For, for good stuff, Reform Act. Yeah. Um, bad stuff, slave trade in Ireland. Uh, yeah, slave trade, Ireland, dismissing Melbourne. But he then mm. tempered that with a different approach in the future. Mm. Um, 
Ireland, he was uh, he was one side and then he was the other. Slave trade's a baddie. Mm. And what, there was so much good stuff. The legacy, him. of course, of his popular... And he's, and he's popular as well, and he is mourned, unlike George IV. He is a popular king. He does lose popularity with the Reform Act when he doesn't create the peers, and they do have the days of May with those riots, which could have pushed things beyond... He just got the there, he got there in the end. He did scrape it through. This is, this is the one where mm. I'm, I'm really susceptible to... Over pointing, over scoring. If, if they're, not, yeah. I mean, it would have been good to be under him, uh, to be a subject under him with all those reforms. And he leaves a good legacy as well. I'm going to go eight. I'm going to give him an eight as well. I think he deserves it. He worked hard and he proves a good constitutional monarch. He plays an important yeah. role. He gets forgotten, but he does a very good job. He really does. Exactly. So that is a very good sixteen. For subjectivity. Excellent. Longevity. He is king from 1830 to 1837. So it's pretty much exactly seven years. Oh. So that gives him a total of just 2.2. That's rubbish. Longevity, which isn't quite such a high score. Oh dear. Dynasty. Not the programme. Well, of course. Oh dear. <laughs> he doesn't have any surviving legitimate children. He does, of course, have those ten Fitzclarences, of whom yeah. eight survived. Yeah. But none of his legitimate children survived beyond infancy. But he does have some famous descendants um, from there. Adam Hart Davis, the uh, popular no way. TV <laughs> scientific yeah. historian chap. Duff Cooper. And David Cameron. Oh, The right. Prime Minister is descended from right. William IV. But no legitimate children himself, which is, of course, a score of zero, which gives him a total score of 36.2. Does he read his brother? He does. Yay! George IV got 35.28, William IV's 36.2. But the big question, of course, is, does he have that sense of greatness, that star quality, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, which we call... Rex Factor! I think you know where I am. Well, I mean... And I think I know where you are, but I really, really... I mean... The whole point mm. is that we recognise star quality where um, perhaps in history they've been forgotten. Mm. And I think if anyone deserves that, it's this guy. Mm. He's not He's not Henry VIII or William the Conqueror where, where everyone knew they were going to get Rex Factor. Yeah. He's, where's this guy come from? Never even knew he <laughs> And he's, oh, he's all over it. There's one argument which I, and phrase which I think you can use to have the counter yeah. point to him. There's a bit of an air to him of a caretaker king. It's kind of like he's somebody comes in, you know, the manager gets fired halfway through the season. He comes in, yeah. sorts everything <laughs> yeah. out, wins yeah. the FA Cup. He's there for six months. He's and off, then yeah. they bring in yeah. the proper guy who's going to be there long term. But I think he did win the FA Cup with his reform <laughs> and all that great stuff. Yeah. And he couldn't believe his luck when he was given the opportunity. He was well like taste. Like a manager. Yeah. And he did a really good job. The fans would have wanted him to be the manager, but unfortunately they'd already got a contract in with Villas Boas or someone else from Europe. Exactly. So that's the only real argument I can think to bring in, is that because it's quite a short reign, it's kind of like someone's reshuffling... Or this got this office with all these papers all over the place, and someone goes, "Hang on, put that there, put that there, put that there." Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Right, that's all sorted now. Someone can yeah. work it, and then Victoria, of course, someone then comes can reap in the benefits in this, yeah. and then actually starts using the system, and that's when you have the really big change and stuff going. And it's almost like William's just the one that 
sets it up. He's a vital cog, though. He's a vital cog, but the question is, is a cog worthy of a Rex Factor? Is he beyond a cog, and thus a Rex Factor great? Or is he very good and important, but not quite, you know, on that step? Is he up there with all the others? Does he deserve to be pushed that high? In my mind, he had everything. What's your answer? I've, I've got, I've got to give it to him. I've got to give it to him. He, he has, um, he understands his role after a shaky start. He understands his role as a constitutional monarch, and mm. and his quote where he mm. lays that out is is perfect. That's what we want. He acts like it. He's funny. He steals a fleet of ships. <laughs> yes, please. I think I'm also going to say yes. Yes. That's a well done to yes. William the Fourth. You are another Rex Factor yes, winner. Yes, he is. You see, you're this man who's who everyone thought George IV was. <laughs> I think the reason for me, although I have this sense of him as a bit of a caretaker king, I do think it's a very important seven years that does transform the monarchy and the sort of political mm. system. And you do have to think, if somebody else had become king, because Cumberland was the next guy in line, mm. if someone else had come in, you could have had revolution. You could, it could have all gone terribly, yeah. terribly wrong. And nobody thought anything was going to happen to William. He just comes in, quietly does his business, and this is a change from the old yeah. to the modern. Yeah. So I'm not sure how well he stands up to all the others. I, he, I feel he may probably be towards the bottom of the Rex Factor winners, but I do think he deserves to get that mm. little but when they place on meet, the step, on yeah. the mountain. He may not be on the peak yeah. with his sword held aloft, but he's, he's sort he's of up there. He's down at base camp and he can't believe his luck. So that is a yes, William IV gets the Rex Factor. That's surprising, but I'm pleased. Email us, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com, tweet us uh, at rexfactorpod, uh, leave a comment on our Facebook. But that means, of course, that next time we'll be doing William IV's niece, the epic reign of Queen Victoria. Crikey. Moving into the 20th century. Oh, it's all happening. But that's for another time. So until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.